0: Uh, Luke writes telling us the story of the brand new faith uh, that is called uh, Christian. These are the first Christ believers. This was before we had the um, more uh, intricate theories uh, 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 and understanding of theology, what we call Christology, our understanding of who and what is Christ this very raw book that just speaks about the power that they see in Christ, and invites people to join the movement, to be swayed, to be moved by the miracles and the signs that they are seeing. So the scene for this particular story starts with the uh, Christ followers, the Jesus group, sitting together uh, in some, probably in a synagogue or a common um, meeting space. They were bereft because Christ had been crucified, had been five weeks. They were, in fact, in the midst of the Feast of Weeks, the uh, Judean festival uh, that celebrated the gift of God of giving them Torah. So here is the day of the established law of the Judeans, this understanding of how God speaks to the Judean people and calls the Judean people into faith. And they are there huddled together, and all of a sudden something happens. There is a wind. There is a great motion Fire leaps up over each of them. They are filled with tremendous energy. The next thing you know, they're dancing around like, I don't know how old they all were, but they were animated and moving, so much so that onlookers accused them being drunk. They found that they could speak. This is a group of Galileans, okay? So they're not, it's like a bunch of country bumpkins. I remember uh, this one comedian, uh, he was doing his bit and he was from Oklahoma and he was in a city uh, doing his routine and he talked about how weird it was to drive through the city with Oklahoma license plates and that people would peer into his car as if expecting to see goats. The people of Jerusalem were so much, they were citified, they considered their honor rank above those who lived in the common rural areas and Galileans had an accent and they were, you know, not that bright, shall we say. Uh, The way one group thinks of another group and how we stratify our societies, we can see it at work here. But these guys were suddenly up, suddenly animated, speaking in public, making eye contact, being joyful, being assertive, and speaking clearly in languages that reflected the whole diaspora of the Judean people across the Roman Empire. Clearly, something amazing was going on. So, as the Jerusalemites, the folks of Jerusalem, gather around sort of in a little bit, uh, you know, like, okay, what's going on? But also derisively saying, well, look at these drunk Galileans hanging around. Peter steps up and begins to preach. This isn't drunkenness. This is a whole new prophetic age. This is proof that God is behind the whole Jesus project. It's a sign, a wonder of the birth of a new church. As Torah had been given on this day so long ago, the Holy Spirit was being given now into this new group of Christ believers. Peter says, see Can't you see the Holy Spirit, the proof of the prophets, should be clear to the densest of you that something important is going on, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus, who is life itself, has been ejected by death, that all the talk about all the resurrection appearances must have some merit, because look at what is going on right now. Jesus was the Messiah, and you all killed him. Okay. Wow, that's a little bit of information. And that goes out to the Jerusalemites, and they, we are told, are deeply troubled. Whoops, oops, what do we do? But the word itself goes a little deeper than just deeply troubled, (laughs) The word is katanuso. Katanuso is a compound word. It's also in the third-person passive, which means it happened to them. So often in our English translations, it seems like we do it to ourselves. That's not what happens here. Kata, downward. A downward motion, piercing into the heart. Catanuso hecardia. It's an idiom. And it means pierced in the heart. And it doesn't mean pierced in the heart to wound, but with truth. What happens from the receiver's point of view is experience of great regret, great sorrow, as the truth is deeply felt about what has happened. So, in looking at this word, we break up the compound and we get even more nu- nuance. So, nuso is, can mean a few things. That idiom that pulls out, nuso can be pierced, stabbed, gouged, It can also uh, be to see what's inside. What's what's going to be, what are we going to see inside the heart here of those who have received a sort of stupefying blow, a blow that has created a little bit of space, shaken them loose a little bit. What's inside? What are they going to do? Will they be moved? Will their hearts be changed? Have you ever done this as a human to another human? I know that uh, I have this wonderful relative whom I love, who is a very staunch climate denier. There's no point reasoning with him. There's no point sharing my experiences and trying it that way. This person is just convinced that it's all just a conspiratorial lie designed to do something that I'm not sure. Sometimes we build up these walls. Defensiveness is hard to breach. Sometimes our brains, they want to create order, and they defy what they see in order to do it. And here's the kicker for some humility is all of us do this not just this relative that I sort of mourn for and wish I could just pull in. I do it too. And sometimes it takes a short, sharp shock to break us out of what we have closed off and open up a moment that we could maybe step into and be changed or step into and do something else. Because even though I am not a climate denier, I don't have all the answers or understanding either. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a, um, I'm not God. I'm not a cosmic everything seer. We may have some of it right. We may need to nuance some of it in five years as we learn more. But nonetheless, we should be talking in community about how to be responsive to what is real. And when we can't do that together, it brings everything to a halt. So there's another idiom here that's kind of cool, uh, interesting for the, um, the idiom of pierced in the heart. And that is to grab the lion by the beard in his den. To beard the lion in his den. And it comes from, uh, there's this wonderful uh, website that I love, it's um, Word Detective. And the gentleman on Word Detective says, well, it's a mix of when young David talks about the story of how he would defeat the predators who came after the sheep by either scaring them off, and if they wouldn't be scared, he'd grab them by the beard or the jaw and, you know, dispatch them. And that showed his bravery. And also sort of mixes it up with Daniel in the lion's den. And it means to sort of pull somebody in on their own turf, to challenge them on their own turf. So in a way, the Holy Spirit beards the lion in his den by grabbing a hold of the folks in Jerusalem who think they have it all figured out, who think and believe that their crucifixion of Christ was because it was needed, because Christ was apostate because there was rabble-rousing going on, and it was not loyal to the temple. They didn't do it because they were mean, wicked, evil people, no more than we're all mean, evil, and wicked, but because they believed that that was the right response based on their faith and their understanding at the time. Who here has done something really dumb, or maybe we regret, but we believed was correct at the time? Yeah, I think if we're honest, most of us have to raise our hands here. And we always hope that it's not such a terrible thing that we do. Like, how much crow am I going to have to eat here now when I go back? And do I have the courage? Do I have the courage to be changed, or am I going to double down? And say, well, I'm never going to admit that that wasn't right. Because we do have that choice, right? But there are stakes. There are stakes. When the Jerusalemites figure this out, when the, when the truth that has penetrated through their being shocks them into an awareness to reconsider what they thought they were so sure they knew, to discover that they had chosen Barabbas over Christ, can you imagine the true regret? that they would have experienced. Regardless of all the Christologies that would follow, this was a man who was clearly shown to be holy and anointed, given the gift of following of God, filled with the Spirit of God, and doing the work of God. So this is a moment where Peter could really stomp them into the ground. Moments before, the Jerusalemites had derided them as country bumpkin, drunken Galileans. After recognizing this, they say, brothers, what do we do? The language radically changes with that one word, brothers. Suddenly, the drunken country bumpkin, Galileans are kin again. This could be the moment where Peter says, yeah, yeah, well, you know, you're all damned, so too bad for you guys. It's not what Peter does. Instead, Peter demonstrates himself as a true apostle and disciple of Jesus Christ, someone who is on this ladder someone who is working to listen and be present and obedient in the right way, letting go of the willfulness that we want in order to connect with the goodness that God is. And he says, well, be washed, come clean, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not grovel, and maybe we'll let you have some of it, but that the gift of the Holy Spirit is simply there to be received, even for folks who had gotten it really, really, really wrong. So there's hope for us, is my point. Amen. So God shows up and changes everything. God takes us into a new place in this moment with all the different languages that have been spoken God is also showing us some new kind of plurality in the story of the of the Tower of Babel God rejects the monocultures of self and self aggrandizing that seek to rival and eclipse God and place self and themselves in the throne. God rejects that. It's like this little, you know, have you ever seen a dandelion grow and grow through its cycle? This little stem pushes up and then this sort of flower blossoms, right? It's so happy. It's such a happy little thing. And then maybe it decides to take over the world. Whoops. Not quite the direction we were planning on. But it has to live its full life cycle, doesn't it? It goes to seed. And pretty soon, the whole head of the dandelion is covered with these seeds. And that is Babel, where God plucks that stem and goes, go on, go out, be different from each other, learn different languages, have different cultures, have different experiences. God delights in those differences. How many people have seen a tree that makes one leaf? I mean, I guess there's the weird asparagus plant, you know, that has the one spear. But even it has other expressions. God rejoices in the plurality. And here we get a new look at how that could look like in a whole new way. This isn't about a new religion. This is about a new way of living. This is a call to koinonia. Koinonia is the the word used here is koinos. Koinos. Poinos means common. It also means unholy. That'll mess with you for a minute, right? Everything blessed and good is holy, and everything unblessed and not good is unholy. Except that that's not how it's presented here. Instead, there's a recognition that there are common everyday things that exist outside the temple that are about human life. Sacred because God has made us, but scrabbly and rascally because we are human. Not everything has to be sanctified. This is not temple work. This is everyday work. God holds us all in common. Right where we are, at the unholy places of our lives, as well as the holy ones. We are creating a society in the first book of Acts that explains to us that these folks, these first Christ believers came together and held everything in common. The public sphere, meal time. It didn't have to be a holy ceremony for God to be there. It was a call to the, a way of life that was about caring for each other and holding each other in common. I would like to say we excel at that. We don't. We stratify every part of our lives based on wealth, education, complexion, language, birth order, birthplace. In the old days, the kings used to have uh, courts, great courts. Well, there's many places, there's still this. And there used to be great fights among the courtiers over who got which place in line, who had precedence, who could walk ahead. There's a lovely uh, little uh, place in uh, uh, one of Emma, uh, uh, one of Jane Austen's works, uh, not Emma, where the ladies, uh, the... Oh, gosh. Pride and Prejudice. There's four sisters, and the youngest goes off and does something she shouldn't do and ends up married. But the precedence order in any household at that time was that if the girls are to walk in a line, the oldest goes first, and then the next oldest, and then the next oldest, and then the next oldest. The only thing that changes that precedence order is if somebody gets married, and then they go first. So Lydia our little misbehaving upstart, she gets married. And when she comes to visit the family, and Jane, the eldest, turns to be the first to return into the house with the sisters following, she puts her arm on her sister and says, no, I go first, and you must go lower because I am a married woman. It's not just Dane Austen who gets up to this. We all get up to this. And to our great harm, we do not hold important things in common. The United Methodist Church, when it was first founded, included white and black people equally. The very beginnings, the very beginnings where prayers were said and circles were formed and songs were sung, it was a shared experience and a shared worship. John Wesley himself advocated that. But as the United Methodist Church grew alongside the nation, things started to change. Pretty soon there were pews that black people couldn't sit in. Pretty soon, there was this idea that, well, the black people, they're all still us, but they can worship here at this time, and we'll worship here at this other time. There were gifted black preachers at the time who were deeply responsible for building the movement of Methodism, but they began to be denied place and denied precedence. You must go lower They were not allowed to participate fully in the life of the church. And Richard Allen eventually said, okay, we're just gonna do our own thing. And the birth of the uh, AME, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, came after a long lawsuit where the greater church, which was still small at the time, sued the black congregation for their property and their church tried to prevent them from leaving. You must go lower. You must stay in our control. Well, a lot of us didn't realize when we were horrified by the shootings in the Charleston church was that that was our church. Historically, We sinned in breaking faith with our brothers and sisters. And what happened is we stopped holding things in common that we should be holding things in common. The white congregations got to escape the weight of racism coming at them. They no longer had to grapple with what that really meant because it was no longer in front of them. They could pretend like I did, that everything actually was pretty good. So while the church split North and South over slavery, the United Methodist Church did, while the um, church right now has this huge and really difficult dialogue about the inclusion of LGBT people, we haven't even begun the conversation about is it possible to reunify based on race is Sunday morning going to be the most segregated day of the week across America forever we don't we are called to hold in common in the marketplace in everyday life hold those things in common, our sisters and brothers in common, that's koinonia we're not doing that, we are leaving them to hold it all Um, I think a lot of us don't know what to do about that, right? I mean, I think a lot of us would, like, if you gave me a checklist, I'd I'd check the boxes, and there were some that were scary to me. I might kind of, I really need to talk. talk about those boxes, but I'd be willing to do that. If we allow ourselves to be pierced in the heart by truth, to be stupefied not by the anger and retribution of God, but by the sudden awareness of God's great love, that we had gotten it very wrong. And we ask Peter, Brothers, what do we do? And Peter says, go and wash, come clean, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is what I suggest we do as a beginning. And trust. And live to try to that, get to that way of life we are called to. To hold all things in common. Together. Let us just hold this moment for a minute.